Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with West Surrey Racing's Dick Bennett. If you've landed here and not had a listen to part one, as we always say, jump back, have a little listen. There are some great memories in there. From growing up in Dunedin on New Zealand's South Island and getting the racing bug thanks to some piranhas. That'll make more sense when you hear it. Heading to England on a shoestring and being spellbound watching the British Grand Prix. His dealings with the legendary Aussie engineer, Ron Turanak, working with Ayrton Senna and being left in no doubt of his greatness. Memories of a young Mika Hakkinen who was blindingly fast and much more. We begin part two on learning to deal with an imperative part of the racing business that would help make West Surrey Racing the well-oiled machine that it is today. Early on in our chat, you talked about not necessarily feeling like um, the the commercial side, perhaps like Eddie, was your your forte, that your forte was more the, you know, the engineering and the chassis and mechanical side, if you will. What were the kind of learnings as you as you forged ahead with the business here on, on that side? Because you're obviously juggling the lot at the end of the day and trying to make a successful organisation. Yeah, we then grew, um, we started running two F3 cars, then we actually had two teams, uh, two cars each, because we were running the Marlborough Young Driver program for seven, eight years. Um, but then we were approached from a Spanish, um, Pedro de la Rosa. Yes. And uh, racing for Spain, and of course, they had a conflicting sponsor. So we had to set up a separate team, basically, did you? Well, that's I hadn't thought about it, but then by this stage, um, Mike Ewing, Kiwi accountant, as the company was getting bigger, so we set up uh, Racing for Spain and WSR. So WSR ran two Marlborough cars, and Racing for Spain ran two, well, car. But the the hiccup with that team was the deal was that Pedro was Formula Renault champion. We had to have Renault engines. Mm-hmm. And Renault were building an F3 engine, so we fitted Renault engines in, but they were dogs. Um, they were seriously down on power, so I felt sorry for Pedro. But um, 93-94, at the end of the year, I felt sorry for Pedro, so we actually fitted a Mugen Honda engine in went testing and he, had, he was just so happy. The, the best he could qualify um, would be 18 to 20th on the grid. And our Marlborough car, Vince Rademacher, we were qualifying one, two, three all the time. And Vince is a very good driver, so was Pedro. Pedro is Renault champion. So we decided at my expense, we put this Honda Mugen engine in and went, and then we went to the race meeting, Donington, and Pierre, the French Renault F3 guy come over for the race. He knew we'd fitted a Mugen Honda, but he still wanted to see it. And he arrived just after qualifying. <laughs> he said, where's Pedro? Because Pedro always qualified 18 to 20. He's looking down there. I said, um, Pierre, P1. Oh, is it the same car? I said, yes. <laughs> is it the same engineer? Yes. Is it the same mechanic? Yes. I said, it's the same chassis, same driver, same. All we've done is take out your Renault and put in a Mugen Honda. Maybe we have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) 
I said, I have been trying to tell you for six months. Um, so that was um, a, a typical yeah. sort of way. But as we grew bigger, um, then we're probably silly me because the rules were changing for 85 to flat floor. Yes. I went back to running one car so we could concentrate on one car instead of commercially probably should have run two or three. Was that about you wanting to ensure that one thing was done right and and competitive? What what was your rationale I was behind The that? rule change going from full ground effects to flat bottom would be a massive change, but at mm. the end of the day it wasn't as big, so mm. we should have, but we went back to one car. Mm. So then um, we won the championship and won Macau as well. So like that put us back up the top of the list yeah. for, you know, good team. Um, so then we grew bigger, um, but then we switched to touring cars for 96. And that was, um, I don't know whether to thank Paul Radisich or, um, but it was hard work the year one. He, it was Paul got me down to a race at Brands. Come and have a look at touring cars, to, you know, interesting you've done enough f3 um so yeah we did it but we were let down by a late call from ford Mm. to do it properly so we were left with some old cars from germany and it was a nightmare so halfway through year one i've got to be honest i was ready to bow out of touring cars really we were working till two or three o'clock in the morning because the car would always break something would crack engine problem transmission problem suspension problems because the cars were converted in a hurry from four-wheel drive to front-wheel drive Mm. of course the load going through the front axle we're gearing up to have a lot of people on the team we're gone from a very compact little f3 team to Mm. suddenly having 30 people on the team design engineers so it's quite a lot of work to manage all that Mm. especially with the works team Mm. so but interesting engineering wise it was a good the super touring was a fantastic formula but became far too expensive let's let's come to that in a second because when i when i first started commentating and i i got my kind of first proper job on commercial television it was with the australian super touring championships i have very fond memories of that two liter chapter can we conclude f3 though firstly you mentioned mauricio gudrum there before did you do a test with him and i think you wanted to back to back something and test him what he was like and I think he sent him with him believing there had been a change to the car but there may not have been to tell me about that yeah yeah that was a test there at Alton Park and Ayrton has said to me this guy is good Um, so we were testing Alton playing with rear geometries and we were going quick once we sussed the original problem and we're already happy how quick I thought we need to see if we can explore more so I played around making an adjustment. He went out and went, come back in. He said, yeah, that's better. And he was about tenth and a half quicker. So I thought, bloody hell, his feedback is incredible for what he could feel, what we changed. And he said it was better and stopped what showed it. So I thought, okay. I said to the guys, do the same again. We'll go a bit further with the rear geometry. But I'd gone around the back of the car. I said to the guys, just keep rattling the span and spend the same time doing it, but don't touch a thing. <laughs> So, right, away you go, Maurizio, off he goes, does another five laps, comes in, and he actually took his helmet off this time, and he said, he said, I don't know, Dickie, he said, he said, to be honest, he said, I can't feel any different to this change. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, he said, it feels the same as the last run. 
I said, well done, mate, because we didn't touch a thing. <laughs> oh, excellent. I won't, I won't use his words. Of, he'd learnt a good graphic, um, grab of the English language. language <laughs> good, good. So, no, but just proved he, he actually had a very good feel for a car. People will want us, because you mentioned him before, to naturally talk briefly about Mika Hakkinen, right? I think in the chat you, you did with the, um, the motorsport guys, you talked about him... Uh, being very animated with his hands in relation to feedback, but maybe not being able to necessarily communicate it. Um, but but his his raw speed was unbelievable, wasn't oh, it? Oh, he was. Um, I've told the story many times before, but he wasn't the brightest guy when it come to immigration at Heathrow. <laughs> we were f- racing at Alton, and I got a phone call on the Thursday night about nine thirty. Oh, Mister Bennett, I said yes. Um, we've got a Mister Hack. Hacker, hacker. I said, Hackenin. Yeah, that's him. We've got him here at Heathrow, Terminal 2, and we're going to put him on a plane back to Finland. I said, no, no, you can't do that. We're racing this weekend. He said, we have told him five times, and he hasn't done it. He needs a visa to come in the UK. I said, sorry. I said, he is Finnish. I said, he's a fantastic driver, and, you know, we have to have him this weekend because of our sponsorship deal. So they said, no, we've told him five times. We're putting him on a plane. I said, please don't put him on a plane. But I said, we'll sort it out tomorrow. So they let him stay. We're on to Philip Morris in the morning. Um, solicitors involved in that. So got him about two o'clock. They rang and said, yeah, we're in for the weekend. We're here. I said, right, get your bum into gear. Get up to Alton Park. Of course, rumours went round the paddock at Alton. Oh, Huckinen's not allowed in the country and all that. So I'll never forget um, Steve Robertson racing F3, Bowman. Yep. His dad come down, Dave Robbie said, Dickie, we've heard that um, Mika's not allowed. And I said, yeah, possibly, true, he might make it, he might not. So they're all testing. We were running Christian Fittipaldi. We had a new, we'd, we'd convinced Ralph to make a smaller main plane on the rear wing. That was quicker. We'd done a tweak on the front wing. That was better. So... Christian was doing all the testing. So everything ticked the box for Christian. We put it on Mika's car, ready. Mika turned up at quarter to five, got in. I said, right, overall's on. Tommy got in the car, 10 minutes left. Out you go, you got new brakes, two laps, come back in. Yep, everything good. I said, right, you got five minutes, away you go. He goes out P1. Unreal. Dave Robber come down and said, we're all wasting our effing time. We thought if he wasn't here, we've got a chance to win. He said, he turns up, hasn't driven all day, and goes P1 within a five laps. Unbelievable. And that was his pure talent. And he gets out the car, everything all right, Mika? Yeah, yeah, it feels okay. Yeah. I said, you just gone P1. Oh, okay. So... <laughs> Did you have to work on a on a feedback thing with him and the way he went about, you know, giving you that? Yeah, um, the car was good because we knew what Christian was setting up. We knew Alton Park, so the little tweaks were done were even better. But um, I probably kicked myself again with him being finished. The first time we drove, I left him in the the truck for half an hour. And I come back, he hadn't written down one thing. And then he said, I'm not very good at writing English. I said, oh, sorry, mate, my fault, because, you know, I thought you could write English. So we sat there and went through a lap of brands, and it was all, you know. Hand movements, hand actions. And I said, understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, over, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went around, I mean, luckily, brands in short. <laughs> we did a whole lap, and then I wrote down for him. I said, right, here you go. And same thing again, 
TI turn in mid corner exit. Yeah. Love it. But and then uh, in the wet um, the year before he had, this was his second year of F3. Year one is because um, he had won the Vauxhall Lotus with Huey Absalon, Dragon Motorsport, um, McNishan Huckenham. They came into F3 and Reynards offered Huey a free Reynard F3 car, but had a very trick front suspension, but only, unless you knew what you're doing, it was no good in the wet. Of course, when I watched Mika, when we were running Alan McNishan, our car, Mika would struggle in the wet. Um, had a very much highly preloaded front spring, which doesn't work in the wet. And when he hopped in our car in the wet, we, we only had a tiny amount of preload. We'd still change that for the wet. He went out in the wet and he came back in. He said, wow, he said, your car's great. I said, well, you've just gone P1 on the wet, quicker than David Brabham. I'm quicker than Brabham. I said, yeah. He's, he's good in the wet. I said, so are you. <laughs> and he was happy with that, going P1 in the wet than what he was P1 in the dry. Because I think a lot of people talked about Brabs and his wet weather performance, didn't oh, they? Oh, yeah. No, he was, and, the you know, uh, what's, uh, Bruce Carey no longer with us. Bruce was a good engineer, and um, we had some good battles over the years. But for Mika to go P1 in the wet, and I said, the trouble is you were given a car that was no good in the wet. Ours is okay, but you know, yeah, but I'm quicker than Bram in the wet. So. <laughs> and that was his gauge, you know, to be. So, yeah, no, he was. And I saw him again last year at the McLaren 60th, and we had a good old laugh again about the immigration. <laughs> I said, Have you got a VC yet, Mika? <laughs> Can we talk um, a little bit about, I, I would imagine along the way, you've had, because it becomes a bit of a well worn path of, of Aussies and Kiwis looking. For opportunity abroad those that might have come in perhaps as mechanics or whatever are there a couple of stories of of some that have come from your country to work for you along the way am i am i right in joining the dots did tim miles work for you at one point and a few others tim worked for trevor carlin, carlin that's right yeah that's yeah right. trevor carlin so good mates tim's just still hopefully he's here this weekend i don't know if he is um yeah no we used to have some good laughs off track um kev weston bacon the project um, four days nice. Kev uh, we bought a little apartment down in Dorset and turns out Kev Weston lives about 15 minutes away crazy so we caught up with him last year he came up to Thruxton to see the touring cars and he can't believe how things have moved on with our little team where we started to, you know what we've got three Arctics 18 tonners motorhomes and um, but no we've had some good Kiwis and Aussies over the years and we still keep in touch with some of them through social media um, hence today, there's 12 of us going to dinner tonight and most of them are from ex-mates from Dunedin, a couple from Ashburton and we've, I've only been downstairs for an hour and some of the stories were coming out with Central Otago in the early days. Yeah. <laughs> Big days. The In wrapping the Formula 3 chapter, is there a zenith moment for you? Because you came through that in what was a golden period. I mean, it was an absolute proving ground for the stars of Formula One uh, on the cusp of breaking into, you know, the very pinnacle of the sport. You played a significant part in some of the names that we've rattled off along the way. I mean, to think that this boy from Dunedin who, you know, loved the British Grand Prix standing on top of a pie cart or whatever it may have been was was doing that, uh, pretty, pretty special. Um, it's... Uh... 
to me, I'm just doing the job I enjoy doing. Um, I'm not so heavily involved on the engineering side now. I still oversee things. I'm still getting emails while I'm out here. Um, we're doing quite a bit of development through this current winter because a bit frustrating. We've only finished third and fourth the last two years. Um, it's been front-wheel drive, front-wheel drive. And, um, so I still take a keen interest on the R&D work going on. We're going to a new engine, BMW, um, for this season. Um, hopefully be a bit better than what we had. We're doing quite a bit of work on the chassis this year. So the design guys are sending me CAD drawings, CAD photos. Uh, we're into quite a bit of 3D printing now. It's becoming the latest thing. Brake ducts, um, the hybrid cooling ducts, all 3D printed. We've got a good association with a, a 3D printing company in the UK. We don't have a printer ourselves. Uh, Neil Browns are doing the engines. We're doing 3D printed inlet manifold, the whole manifold, 3D printed. It'll be probably two kilos lighter than the old aluminium one. And the th good thing is with the 3D printing, you can make shapes and change it within 24 hours. Mm. Whereas if you've got a cast aluminium inlet manifold, you're talking weeks to modify it, cast it, you know, machine it. Now they just get on the laptops, change that, change this. So. The technology is still moving on. The hybrid is, we can see why it was done, be help, be seen to be green, but it's... It's been challenging that process, hasn't it? It's turned out more expensive than we all wished. Um, it'll be interesting this year, the rules have changed quite a bit. When we deploy the hybrid now, um, we'll probably have about a 60 horsepower increase because it's using the EV hybrid, about 30 horsepower from the EV motor, the battery, and it will also use turbo power from the engine because last year it wasn't a big enough jump when you hit the button like a DRS. Um, so, and the, the good drivers, again, good teams. We have a little um, blue lightning thing on the side window and the good drivers, if you, your team, not your teammate, your opposition driver next to you, when you press the steering wheel to deploy it, you can see the blue light flashing. So that you're using it. And it press mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but then it's cleverly done that if you lead the championship, you only get like one second a lap. Mm -hmm. And as you go down through the championship, you get more seconds per lap to deploy it. So to try and help stop one car dominating. But, yeah, engineering-wise, we've um, uh, the racing is still. We do three races a day on Sunday, so you need a good crew of people, and that's one of the key things. Now we've got a very good bunch of guys and girls um, running the team. Hence, you know, I'm away for six weeks, which I've never done before. But I've got my laptop with me and my mobile, so I keep in touch. When Terry, my wife, goes to bed, I'm on the laptop emailing back to England. Um, the biggest problem we're trying to find a fourth driver we we geared up to run four cars last year and now um, it's just the cost of it all the economy it's getting harder to find a good driver with a, a good budget so trying to find more team sponsors is becoming more important for us If you are liking what you are hearing, I reckon you might have a thing for Kiwis, or motorsport, or both. 
Either way, you will love Brendan Hartley in the garage library. The Le Mans 24-hour winner for Porsche and Toyota. Also raced for Toro Rosso in F1. Yeah, when I called him all those years later, I said, look, um, if there's ever an opportunity, I'm ready. You know, I'm a different driver than I was back then. And um, he didn't say much. Like, he just went silent on the other side of the phone. So he, he didn't, yeah, he didn't, you, you could almost hear the cogs turning. You know, he didn't, he didn't laugh at me. He didn't say, forget it. So I put down the phone, didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, well, he didn't say no. Um, and it was probably only two weeks later, he said, okay, you need to hop on a plane and fly to Milton Keynes to drive the simulator. I didn't ask any questions. Um, I didn't want to come across as desperate, although I probably was. <laughs> um, so I went there, drove the simulator, and, and a week later I was um, in discussions to, to do my first Grand Prix at, uh, at Austin. So that's the time period it happened that quick, you know, it, it, it was really that quick. Brendan is a testament to his hard work and dedication. All right, back to another worker and another winner, Dickie Bennett's. The British Touring Car chapter, you've come through different um, eras with that sport. You started before on the, the super touring aspect. When you were merging and moving into that, that was an unbelievable time. And we would we would see Formula One teams play a part. We would see incredible development in those cars. There's a number of those uh, era super tourers in this country right now. When they roll out and they get going again and they're, they're a joy to look at in terms of the build quality on it and the sound and what they could do was remarkable. Yes, no, I uh, was lucky last year when they had the race at Brands Hatch, I think it was five cars. Greg Murphy came over and Stephen Richards, I think, didn't they? Yep, and um, Nigel Arkell, a Honda. It wasn't one of our Hondas. He had the earlier model one. Um, But um, I met with Scott O'Connell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had lunch at the RAC club in London and Liam was there, Liam Lawson yeah. and young Louis Sharp. Yes. So we had a great lunch together and it's it's good to see the Kiwis with those super tourings because I know they're not cheap to run, so getting things like spare parts and that, but with the modern technology now, you can reverse engineer, you can 3D print things um, and some of the materials now in 3D printing is just unbelievable. So, and they, as you said, the the V6, the Mondeo and all that, um, I still remember that was, you know, and we had a V6-powered MG when we moved to the newer rules, not the current rules, but 201 to 203, we ran V6-powered MG and, like, there's the best-sounding car on the track. Heavy old engines are not the best-handling car, um, but, no, the, the super-touring cars, and I can't believe how many there are, out here in NZ, yeah. Have you got a, a memory? You talked about how difficult that was to begin with. Is there a real high for you in that in that super touring period? Um, the Honda Super Tour in the last two years, that was the technology moving and the cost of it all was just, it was ridiculous for a national championship. Um, we thought we had a good budget, 99, 2000. Then when it all finished, the end of 2000, he got talking to all the other team owners. Oh, we had 9 million for that year. We had nine and a half, ten million. 10 oh, okay. And that's pounds. Pounds. For Ford to win it in 2000 with three cars, three top-line drivers, Anthony Reid, um, Alain Menu, and Ricard Rydell. Those guys are earning serious money but also the development on the cars. And 
having got to know the Ford marketing director, we all said, right, let's be honest. What did, you know, oh, Nissan, nine and a half million to win it in 99. 10 million. I thought, oh, I thought we had a good budget at five and a half million. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, it, I mean, it was unsustainable. I mean, it was, a, it was a fantastic period. I look back on it very fondly, but it, it just got away, didn't oh, it? The, the handling, the development. We were having new uprights made, right, mm. do them right. Now we need that. Now we need this. Now we need to change that, right. Make a new shell, move that there. You know, just from an engineer's point of view, we had 35 people at the height of Supertoy to run two cars. That's crazy. As I said earlier, we now have 12, 13 people full-time to run four cars, and we have 30 people at the racetrack to run four cars, plus catering team, so about 35 of us. Um, You need roughly six to seven per car these days because of the electronics. Um, Each car has its own race engineer, has its own data engineer, has its own tyre and fuel man, and we have a dedicated number one and number two mechanic per car, a chief mechanic, and we have a floating one or two number three mechanics. So um, team manager, Carl, and then myself, gradually trying to step back a bit, but <laughs> haven't quite succeeded yet. To, to kind of get towards the finish here, What's the BTCC like now for Australian and, and for Kiwi listeners? Take them there. I, I, my good friend, Louise Goodman, who I commentate oh. with on, on, regular, on a regular basis, I know she's a part of that, and she talks very fondly about it and so on. Just take people there. Give them a sense of what the BTCC scene is like now. It's still the, you know, apart from the one-off British Grand Prix, the BTCC is the biggest event in town. There's British GT, but it doesn't get much television coverage, whereas... We have 10 meetings, three races on Sunday only. We've discussed having a race Saturday to Sunday to help spread the workload. But according to the administrator, um, the boss man, the surveys done shows that people want to see three races on the Sunday. But sometimes the time the car gets back in the garage to the pit lane opens, sometimes only an hour and a half. So if you've got any damage, any mechanical hiccups, that's why we need a big crew of people. live on ITV um, it is you know still great racing close racing and uh, I think we'll finish third and fourth that's not very good but then you look at qualifying there'll be 20 cars within three quarters of a second and if, hang on you've got different five or six different manufacturer cars you've got rear wheel drive front wheel drive we're the only rear wheel drive team now so it's difficult for us to win many battles when it comes to regulations, because if you have a vote, as I've mentioned, it's you know it's not democratic. There's only one. We can never win a vote because there's only one rear-wheel drive team <laughs> versus six or seven front-wheel drive teams. But they do a pretty good job of tr- uh, trying to keep it all equal. Of course, you get people, oh, uh, rear-wheel drive's winning too much. So, you know, we've had that problem that, um, through us winning and with another team winning, that was rear-wheel drive for five years consecutive. So therefore the front-wheel drive, oh, the rear-wheel drive's got too big an advantage, so they penalise us. Now when we try and turn around the other way, that hang on, front-wheel drive's got too big an advantage. But hang on, but you won then and then. Yeah, but we did, but now. So last year we finished third and fourth, the year before we finished third and fourth. It's the same four drivers the last two years. We've finished third and fourth. The two front-wheel drive guys, they've switched. 
22 was um, Tom Ingram and 23 was our son. So front wheel drive, front wheel drive. So I said to Alan, maybe it's time to change. We need a bit more help towards rear wheel drive. <laughs> Why is that, Dick? Why should we do that? I said, okay. So then that forces us to spend more on development through the winter. So we've done a lot of work on the chassis, weight distribution, um, new engine, um, playing around with power, how it delivers the power, a uh, little bit of aero work. We've done a facelift on the car, new front bumper, new headlights, new rear bumper, a um, little bit of aero work. So hopefully we'll, we'll come out fighting this year. We look forward to that. You mentioned the administrator there before. People will know him from his time with Peter Brock in Australia and he's been, you know, that driving force of the BTCC for, what, over 20 years now, more. What's Alan Gow like even today? Alan's all right. We have our battle, Aussies versus Kiwis, <laughs> mainly about rugby or cricket. Um, yeah, no, it's a tough job. I, you know, I can see both sides. Sometimes we complain, um, but he, he has a tough job to do to keep everyone happy. happy. Front-wheel yeah. drive, rear wheel Then they suggested everyone goes rear-wheel drive or everyone goes front-wheel drive. And then uh, the public, the social media, the keyboard warriors, um, no, we want to see both to get a variation going. And yes, BMW, their one series now is front-wheel drive. So we looked at that, but BMW pure motor racing is rear-wheel drive, the M product, you know. Um, so we've entered the the first two years was a 330i, but because now we're hybrid, we actually enter at 330e because you can buy a road-going BMW 330e. So we race under that. Um, but the hybrid is the hybrid run by everyone is Cosworth. So Alan was key on getting all that to be Form, formal or, or, or um, the same, basically. Yeah. Yes, yes. So everyone has to run the same Cosworth hybrid system. Um, yeah, it's a great show. The, the television, the crowds, um, certain circuits were still getting 35,000 odd wow. people. Social media is becoming bigger and better. Um, as you mentioned, Louise earlier, she's um, key part of it. Pit lane interviews and that. Um, she has a tough job sometimes. Some are, some of the drivers I think a bit hard on her, um, but others are great. Um, and there's that mixture of um, serious drivers versus some you can have a good laugh. You know, and the days of the Jason Platos and that. Jason's retired now. He's mid fifties, but you know he was a character, good, good, quick peddler on the day. Um, so Alan has, and one of the biggest hiccups, which he openly admits as well as the 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 regulations these days, track limits. It's an absolute nightmare. And I was talking about it yesterday to people here in New Zealand motorsport. One big example that really I could not get my head around is I went as a visitor last year, Busman's Holiday, down to Brands to watch the WEC, is it Sports Car Sports Series, Fanatec. Um, I went down because um, M4 BMW GT3 WRT team mm -hmm. and happened to be a, a fairly well-known motorcyclist driving, car number 46. And I didn't realise the team owner knew me well because one of our Belgium F3 drivers was one of his best mates. So he invited me into his garage and 
I watched their race. They didn't bother about track limits at all. And Jonathan Palmer, who owns brands, is quite fussy. He'll keep his tracks all mint, a bit like Tony here at Highlands and everything. Grass is always mowed, the edges are all painted. They were probably two meters off the track coming out of corners. And I said, we can't do that. He said, we run under FIA. We can, you know, we've got FIA stewards, FIA clerk of the course. We run an hour after or half an hour after that race was a BMW UK club championship race. Up on the screen, every lap, six cars, track limits, track limits, and they're only going six inches off. It, it drives fans, and particularly constituents who've been around it for a lot, it drives us mad, doesn't it? And it's, um, we get pinged because we've got three team BMW cars, very similar livery, mm. and sometimes they ping because they, Jonathan has sensors in the track, mm-hmm. which was very clever at the time. And if you triggered the sensor with front or rear tyre, and his sensors were about a foot to 18 inches off the edge of the track. Yep. So if you got triggered that, it set the camera off, you can't argue. Now, uh, due to Motorsport UK, or it can't be FIA rigs because of the GT3 cars. If we go two inches off the line, you're penalised. But they have to rely on um, observers Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. And they haven't got enough observers to do it properly. Mm -hmm. And they know it's a problem, but at the moment they won't change it. And it's, you know, we get pinged track limits, especially if you're on a hot lap and qualifying, Mm -hmm. and you might have only gone off the edge. You haven't gained any time, you probably lost time, but they take your lap away from you. Mm -hmm. And in a race, if you do it more than three times, um, they'll give you a warning lap first time, a warning second time, and the third time they'll come up penalty. And if you do it a fourth time, they'll black flag you. And an incident last year with a young, one of our ex-drivers, Ricky Collard, he was leading the race, and you can see it on our screen on the pit wall, car number, whatever it was, Collard, track limits. Next lap, I thought, why is he not? not using it why aren't they telling them so after he finished first on the road he came to come into park fermay and the chief scrutineer told him no don't come and park fermay you you're not you know you've been pinged you've been pinged so major major problem and it turned out I, i know the engineer of him i went down and spoke to him i said did you not tell him yes we told him i said i went to the team owner i know him quite well did you not tell your driver yes we told him why did he keep ignoring it? His dad had told him, if you're leading, they'll not penalise you. They did. He got excluded. <laughs> so father interfering with <laughs> with son's driving. So, yeah, it was... But that's... it. It's a crazy regulation that they will penalise you when there's no gain. And on this particular BMW car club meeting at Brands, there must have been... 10 to 15 cars per lap. You can just see the number, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And I, I mean, I, I don't know the easy the easy fix to it. I mean, if you compare it with other sports, if you go out of bounds, you're out of bounds. I get that. But for it to be so minute at times in our, our game, um, I mean, that's the stuff that drives fans mad. To get to, to get to the finish here, you mentioned Jake before. What about a word on your other driver in Colin Turkington? He's been a... Um, I mean, for for you guys, he's been such a staple, hasn't he? Yep, Colin's been with us off and on since he was, I think, 
Formula, sorry, Ford Fiesta champion 201. He joined us, Team Atomic Kitten, as a secondary team in 202, him and Gareth Howe. Um, then he became a works MG driver, then BMW. He won his first championship 09 with a E90. Um, second championship in 14, the eBay 125i. All normally aspirated, no, turbo then, sorry. The 09 was normally aspirated. Won it again in 18 with the 1 Series, Team BMW. Won it in 19 with the 3 Series. Finished second in 20, finished second in 21. Um, so he's slowly dropping down a bit, so we, we joke with him, you're getting too old, Cole. <laughs> he's 41, so he's still young. So he's having a refresh this year because yep. he's been beaten by his teammate Jake the last two years. We finished third and fourth. Yep. Very close. We finished, I think, two points apart last year. But to be fair to Colin, he had more hybrid problems, okay. um, especially 2022 almost. We went into Silverstone, the penultimate round, leading the championship. We come away from that meeting fourth in the championship because of hybrid problems. And that's what we find hard to take when it's things out of our control. Um, but now this year, we're, you know, we've all learnt more about hybrid, the Cosworth system, and we should we hit the ground running. And, you know, Colin's up for it again. He he knows he's got to lift his game a bit. And we're, we're making some changes within the team engineering-wise. Um, he's analysed things. He's rung me a lot through the winter and... He said to me, joking, he said, I won't annoy you while you're away on holiday, but I've had two texts from him while I've been away. <laughs> That's all, just two only. Um, so, no, he's looking forward to this year. He knows what we're doing to the chassis. Jake's looking forward to this year. Um, we've got Adam Morgan already. So he's looking forward to this year, and we're just still looking for one more driver. So if there's any good young Kiwis out here with a good budget, we'll, we'll have a chat. Have a chat. To finish, what do you reckon you must proudest of in this incredible 50 year plus journey that you've you've enjoyed and then then secondly you've you've alluded a little bit to it what does the future hold um it's it's hard to pinpoint one because i've had great times working for other teams in my early days with our own company um i guess winning f3 championship winning macau grand prix with both Senna and Guzelman. Um, should have won it with Huckenham, but that's another story. Could have won it with Irvine, that's another story. <laughs> um, touring cars, probably our first championship win is great. Um, competing in super touring engineering wise, that was a fantastic challenge of reading the rule book, interpreting the gray areas. That was enjoyable from my side. Um, it's a team that's just growing up and it's the future is I'm we're looking for investors um, to invest in the team so we are looking at digressing into different formulas um, sports cars we know is quite strong at the moment um, my young team manager wants us to do this, wants us to go and Porsche Carrera Cup. So I said, well, 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 I'm getting on now. But, you know, if you like, you guys like to take over, I'll step back a bit and, you know, as long as you keep the WSR running at the front, you know, it's easy to lower your standards. And that's something I find 
I can't do or don't want to do. Um, but we've got a good bunch of guys working for us now, and I am. I don't spend as many hours at work as I used to, but when I'm there, I put my effort in and race meetings there to help and advise. So, but we're interesting talking. My wife Terry, we've been out here and we've come back to Central Otago, and we were here four years ago, um, pre-COVID, and she loves Wanaka. This time we've done a trip down the South Island, down the West Coast and that Hokitika. I've been to Mount Cook for the first time in my life. Yet I go fishing Lake Ohau when I was five or six years old with my dad. So now I've actually been to Mount Cook, got the photos. But we come back to Wanaka. We loved it there. We were four days. And we had discussed doing the old six months, England, six months, New Zealand. And then we canned it. We bought a little apartment down in Dorset, two bedroom overlooking the sea. But now we're going, oh, hang on, we're enjoying it back here. <laughs> we loved Wanaka for four days. We're loving it here. We're staying in a little B&B, Bannockburn House. Um, beautiful view out the back. Had a lovely meal last night at the Bannockburn Hotel. And I thought the weather, the sun shining, highlands here. I thought, hang on, we might review this six months, six months. <laughs> so we chatted about it last night and, and and we got quite serious about it. You know, will we look at moving back here six months and that? So... What was on the agenda four years ago went off the agenda, and now it's back on the agenda because it's just the, the scenery and something I didn't appreciate is from the whole day, from eight in the morning till eight at night, how the scenery changes with the sun moving over all the, and the vineyards, we, we never realised. Um, we got taken out yesterday to various vineyards. I never realised there's so many little, you know all the big names. We went to Blenheim, went to Cloudy Bay, went to all the, big names but up here in central there's a little place we went yesterday and the wine was fantastic. fantastic so we love our wines and back in england i do spend quite a bit on central otago wines so good for you it keeps the connection to back home it's great to have you here over summer it's been wonderful to walk through a handful of stories i reckon there'll be a lot more some might make a book some might not make a book but um, from from all of us, congratulations on what you've achieved along the way and the people you've you've helped um, guide and and shape as you've you've gone. And the little takeaway from me here at the end is that you're still not afraid of of growth of WSR at this stage, but so long as that doesn't compromise success. Well done. Yeah, no, no, thank you, Greg. No, no, it's been great coming back here having a chat. And um, no, no, I am as I said trying to slow down I promise my wife I'll slow down a bit but I still enjoy motorsport but also you've got to keep your mind active I couldn't stop completely um, so I have promised her that I will slow down but I still you know want to be involved whether it's helping people um, I still love I still buy motorsport uh, engineering magazines I read them TV programs anything to do with technology I follow what Ridge Cook's doing up in Auckland um, Formula One, I follow mainly the technology, not the politics side of it. Um, what they're doing to the cars through the winter and, you know, aero development on that sort of stuff. Um, oh, yeah, I'd sooner watch, I'd sooner do that than watch television, watch some soap or something. Fabulous, <laughs> mate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. 
Series editor and producer is Thomas Dullard. Audio production by Link Kelly. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage, that's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fuelled stories. Stories.